Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. Christopher Simpson, author of Science of Coercion, thank you for joining us. Hello. In your book, uh, you describe the influences on communications studies or communications research. What are the practical definitions of these terms? Well, these are programs that train people who might be called the ideological workers of U.S. society. uh, They train journalists. They train public opinion specialists, uh, um, public... um, you know, uh, public relations types, advertising, and so on. There's a a body of scientific or somewhat scientific techniques that ideological workers use, and and communication research is uh, what it's called uh, within uh, the university. Could you give a a bit more of a definition of what an ideological worker is? well, I, I'm, I'm not using the, the term in some great scientific sense. I, I simply mean a person whose job it is uh, articulating and influencing ideology uh, in his or her society. And in our present conversation, we're talking mainly about the United States. Journalists, TV journalists, uh, uh, the um, columnists on the uh, op-ed page of the papers, uh, one can speak more broadly and, and draw in, you know, politicians and ministers and so on. But but I'm looking mainly at uh, mass media type people. And you also talk about the uh, various ways that the United States government itself has affected the way these fields of study have progressed. Tell us about some of the government-sponsored communications programs or projects. Right. Well, what the book does is it goes, uh, I went through uh, classified uh, records that I got from the National Archives and and through the Freedom of Information Act and documented how government, intelligence, and military agencies had basically bankrolled the creation of this particular field of sociology and, and helped it get set up with think tanks and specialist research institutions and so on um, and examples of this included like for uh, th- there was a very interesting example in the mid-1950s where the Air Force bankrolled a program to drop leaflets on uh, remote American communities and the leaflets uh, said uh, this could have been a bomb the Soviet Union may might be attacking your neighborhood with atomic weapons. And uh, the, um, the function of this test was, on, on its surface anyway, was to study the dispersion of messages in a population, right? I mean, if a message comes out, like say an advertisement or a political message, whatever it is, how does that get spread through a population? Let, right. let me just, you know, point out that in your book you have... Uh a sort of a, uh, a likeness of that which was dropped. I guess it's a, just a miniaturization of uh, sure. that flyer that was dropped. It goes, uh, this could have been a bomb invasion by air as possible. Early detection of approaching aircraft is our only defense. Then you have at the bottom, contact your filter center today right. and learn how you can help this program. What, 
was, is this just a mock, or was there actually a place that people could then contact? Oh, they, they could actually contact it. This was part of the civil defense effort of the 1950s. Uh, it was uh, underwritten, uh, this particular project was underwritten mainly by the Air Force. Now, so as I was saying a moment ago, the, the, the first layer of this is the scientific or uh, pseudoscientific effort to uh, learn how messages travel through a population. Okay. Then the next layer is also very interesting. The time at which these leaflets were dropped was the height of the so-called bomber gap scare. And those of your listeners who uh, track Cold War stuff and uh, or who, you know, uh, remember the bomber gap of the 1950s, this was a big, oh, publicity blip, the publicity crisis, really, where the Air Force convinced, uh, put out a lot of publicity to the effect that the Russians had bombers and they were going to, um, you know, outstrip our military capability. And the only solution to this problem was to spend billions of dollars on designing new bombers and new atomic weapons and so forth and so on. And looking back today, even, uh, you know, very moderate historians agree that the bomber gap was manufactured. I mean, it was, it was a made-up thing to, um, to uh, uh, goose uh, the Air Force budget up. You know, the Air Force was worried that it was going to lose funding, so it came up with this bomber gap. All right. Well, here you have uh, a, a propaganda program, essentially, dropping tens of millions of leaflets all over the Pacific Northwest saying this could have been a bomb. Enlist now. Be part of the fight against the Soviet bombers blowing up your family. Now, what sort of effect do you think that that had on the public debate over whether or not there was a bomber gap? And this is particularly at a time, by the way, where the actual statistics about the bombers and you know, whether what the Soviets were developing or not developing and so forth. This was all classified. And so it, it uh, um, you know, when people would say, well, what are, what's, what's the true story about the bomber gap? The Air Force would say, well, you'll just have to trust us on this one. Um, the point being is that most of these programs that, that were intended to um, explore concepts of how do you manipulate people through the media. They both had that, had sort of a scientific aspect to them, and they had a um, publicity aspect to them, where they would try to promote a particular point of view about America, the world, about how the world works, and so on. We are speaking with Christopher Simpson. He's the author most recently of Science of Coercion, Communication, Research, and Psychological Warfare, 1945 to 1960, a compelling book. Christopher Simpson is uh, he is nothing less than dynamite. dynamite. His uh, earlier books, Splendid Blonde Beast, came out last year. Terrific book. Uh, and you, some of you may know blowback about... Uh, uh, tracking the Nazis, Nazis in the United States, the way U.S. government uh, hired the Nazis, brought them into this country. 
Christopher Simpson. Let's uh, talk about one of the fundamental architects of this program that you're outlining that you talk about in your book, Wilbur Schramm. Uh, uh, tell us about Wilbur Schramm, his politics, his association with the U.S. government, his influence on communications. Now, what did he do that made him so influential? Right, right. Well, the, the first thing to, to understand in looking at Wilbur Schramm is that you know, as one person, he's just one person like everybody else in a certain sense. He's not like, the, you know, so much smarter uh, than everyone else. He's, what he is, the, the, the reason I explain his career in the book is that he's a case study of how ideology works in the universities and how, um, almost without noticing it, the universities, uh, first of all, for their professors and students, um, uh, propagate particular ideas and worldviews and uh, uh, methods of approaching the world. Okay, that's number one. Then the interesting thing that follows is this, is that the next generation uh, accepts those um, preconceptions as though they were facts and then builds upon that a new layer of preconceptions, and so on through the generations until such time as the preconceptions, you know, to, to look at it from the outside, if you don't make a systematic study of it, well, that looks like it's really true, you know, it looks like it's really fact. Somebody says, uh, um, now I'll give you an example. How widespread do you think it is, is the, the attitude that um, people in third world countries are violent and brutal? and not, uh, not very well informed. Savage, ignorant. Right, exactly right. This is extremely widespread point of view. It's based upon ignorance. But it's ignorance that has been manufactured. It's ignorance that has grown up over the years, uh, largely for political and economic reasons. And, and I'll, I'll show you, I'll give an example of how this, uh, of, of, part of how this happened. Um, coming out of World War II, psychological warfare was the oh, sort of big hot thing for the U.S. government. You know how the government goes through fads and there's, you know, SDI was the big hot thing in the Reagan administration. Well, psychological warfare was a big thing in the Truman administration. And the idea was that uh, by, using, by cleverly using mass media and dirty tricks and so forth, the U.S. government could uh, extend its influence and also um, establish a stability of sorts around the world uh, much more broadly than it could do if all it had to rely on uh, were soldiers and guns. You follow me? By convincing people that... Uh, U.S. approach was the right approach, well, then, then you wouldn't need soldiers to go in and force them to accept the U.S. approach. All right. Um, those programs were called psychological warfare, right? Very, it, it's, it's almost a, a naive presentation. You know, it's rather straightforward as to what the government had in mind. Um, now, going into the early 1950s, they discovered that, oops, uh, calling it psychological warfare was kind of counterproductive uh, because people in foreign countries would look at it and say, well, I don't want people to, 
psychologically make war on me. So, you know, so, so that when the U.S. was talking about its psychological warfare programs, it, it was actually undermining its own programs. Uh, one of these guys who was very much uh, involved in these efforts was Leo Bogart, um, who's still around, he's still writing. And um, he wrote in a report to the U.S. Information Agency, uh, well, talking about psychological warfare in public is a little bit uh, like talking about the techniques for seducing a woman in front of the woman that you have just seduced. Now, you know, the, you know, the sexist undertone there is obvious, but you get the point, is, is that talking about it uh, uh, undermines it. So, what happened? Well, the rhetoric changed without changing the essence of what was going on. The books that uh, were in, say, 1950 about psychological warfare began to be called books about international communication. And that the, the name psychological warfare, which at least had the virtue of being honest and straightforward, that was dumped. The name propaganda, that was dumped. But now it became international communication. And international communications, it was obviously of great interest to U.S. national security agencies. You write in your book uh, about Wilbur Schramm, who you've uh, been just talking a little bit about. You write some important Schramm writings from the 1950s concerning communication remain inaccessible today because they were prepared in connection with CIA and military-sponsored psychological warfare projects and that the government insists must remain secret more than 30 years later. Right. What is so dangerous? What do they need to keep secret? Well, I think in the particular case of the SRAM studies, that's mainly BS, and that it's, it's more sort of a knee-jerk secrecy. I don't, uh, from what I, I've been able to determine, and I, I've looked at SRAM's career very closely, there isn't like some key to a code that's out there in a government file. Uh, what, what this is about is ideology. What this is about is how uh, the state and the cultural apparatus in general manufacture preconceptions. Now, you know, I was talking about international communication just a moment ago. If you go to any major university in the United States, UC Berkeley, for example, has a large program. Stanford, just down the peninsula there, has a large program. That's where SRAM ended up, by the way, is at Stanford. Um, you, you're, you're not going to find courses or a, you can't get a degree anymore in propaganda, right? I mean, that would be embarrassing. But you can bet that you'll get a degree in international communication. The techniques that you learn, the text, that you read, the professors that you hear, for the most part, are saying very much the same sorts of things that used to be taught as propaganda and psychological warfare. But now they have a new name, and the new name conceals or tends to conceal the actual um, ideological underpinnings of the activity, because it's not... I mean, everybody knows that propaganda is kind of stinky, right? I mean, that, that's that's... That's one's first response. But international communication, well, that sounds sophisticated. That sounds like it might even be a good idea. I mean, heaven knows we need international communication. The world would be a better place if we had better international communication. Uh, 
Um, but so, so you get the point, is, is that here you have government-financed programs that are, are explicitly intelligence and propaganda programs. And why are they explicit? Well, otherwise they can't get it through the Congress. You know, Congress is very suspicious of how the government spends its money. Um, so, you know, the, the USIA puts, uh, the U.S. Information Agency puts forward a plan. This, this, and this are the things we need to study in order to more effectively manipulate people abroad. Same deal with the CIA, although obviously there's much more classification. Um, that money gets spent establishing think tanks and university programs and underwriting professors' salaries that are identified in some detail in the book. Those people write books that explain ideas about communication. And those ideas, in turn, become the beginning of preconceptions about how communication works. Now, SRAM finally come around to the answer to your question of about five minutes ago. SRAM, more than probably any other person, articulated these preconceptions. He was very good at sort of putting them down on a page and, and laying them out. Um, and some of them will be familiar to your readers, uh, or to your listeners, rather. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard many times about... Um, well, you, you have authoritarian governments. That's like Pinochet or Marcos or, or, you know, name the dictator. And then you have totalitarian governments, which is like the Soviet Union, supposedly, or, or Eastern Europe or Czechoslovakia. And the totalitarian governments are supposed to be so much worse than the authoritarian ones that it's worth uh, risking nuclear war or conducting nuclear war to, uh, to uh, fight them. Well, that distinction between totalitarian and authoritarian is, most political scientists will, will tell you if they thought about it, is manufactured. It's bogus. It Jean Kirkpatrick exist. loved that, didn't she? Oh, yeah. That Jean Kirkpatrick built a career on propagating that idea. What the idea lacks in uh, factuality it more than makes up uh, in its political usefulness. It's a very politically useful idea, at least in the United States. And so Wilbur Schramm would be the George F. Kennan of the communications field, I suppose. If you've just joined us, we are speaking with Christopher Simpson, the author of Science of Coercion, Communication Research, and Psychological Warfare, 1945 to 1960, an exceptional small book, too. It's an easy read. Uh, but really quite a remarkable piece of work, Christopher Simpson. But what you're describing is, it sounds to me as if it's a government-sponsored undermining of the open society and uh, also a very sophisticated government-sponsored mind control game uh, being directed at the, ultimately at the citizens of the United States. But what are the practical effects of such government influence on the way journalists or others in communications do their work? Right. Well, a couple different uh, practical uh, effects. One is, is in the training process, what is taken to be truth about communication, about people, and so on. And the most basic thing is that it is taken to be truth that communication consists of um, some power at the center broadcasting out and uh, telling other people what to do. 
And that power at the center could be like a newspaper, like the Washington Post, could be a radio station, television station, whatever. All these have this, a very similar design into, uh, to their uh, communication pattern. You have a central broadcasting point that uh, propagates what its uh, view of the world is. Now, um, uh, that is a very basic attitude about communication. And it's not that the, that, that presentation is untrue. What the problem with that is, is it takes all communication of any sort and reduces it to that form or that type or that particular little narrow slice of communication that is most useful to uh, big business and to the state. Um, if, you, if you think back, what is communication? Where does this word come from? Well, it's a similar word to community or commune or communion, so forth. All of these concepts, this is like rooted in, in uh, the English language, talk about a two-way process, a consensual process, a process that involves listening as well as speaking. That communal aspect of communication has been gutted to the point that it's virtually non-existent in modern society. And what is substituted for it is a particular type of commercial relations in which uh, advertising and mass-produced goods substitute themselves for human relationships. Uh, you know, and, and and if I was if I was uh, as good an author as, as as you were kind enough to say, I would be able to find some method to right now in our discussion have a more two way discussion with uh, your audience, right? Uh, now, uh, Pacifica Radio does a pretty good job of involving the community and and. Uh, allowing people on the air and, and so forth and so on. Certainly much better than the networks do. But still, this problem seems to be built into modern communication forms. And we are speaking with Science of Coercion, speaking of modern communication, Science of Coercion, Communication, Research, and Psychological Warfare, 1945 to 1960. We are speaking with Christopher Simpson. And um, just to stay on this subject uh, for a moment more, I'm really um, now curious to know, given this kind of policy, this kind of government-sponsored program, uh, it would seem to me that they would uh, spend a lot of time attempting to uh, directly infiltrate the media, if you will, create exemplary figures at the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, uh, of uh, people who can uh, set the tone, who can make sure that this kind of uh, pro-U.S. Uh, journalism exists. Yes, that's true, and that certainly took place. Um, the the uh, you can look at the history of CBS, for example, during uh, particularly the 1950s, where a lot of the records are now open, and and you can see there was a very systematic effort to. 
place uh, people with an intelligence background in the mass media to to cultivate particular uh, sources and so on. Um, I, I went to a um, to a, a talk by uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, not long ago. Seymour Hirsch is a well-known and very talented investigative reporter. Anyway, he was talking about his experience at the New York Times, where during the early 70s, uh, Hirsch uh, uh, wrote uh, for the Foreign Desk, and how uh, the office wasn't all that big, and he was across the desk from a man who was at that stage the um, the uh, Times chief diplomatic correspondent. And every day at four o'clock, the phone would ring, and who would be on the line but Henry Kissinger? And they would sit down and literally talk through the foreign policy developments of the day so that the Times would have um, its, uh, an appropriate spin on the news. Ted Koppel says his idol is Henry Kissinger, and if you look at the FAIR study, Henry Kissinger, I think, was the most welcomed, uh, most frequent guest on Nightline. Right, right. Well, and there's another, there's another level to this particular story, is that there was some crisis in the early 70s, and uh, the foreign uh, uh, one of the, the foreign cor- the chief diplomatic correspondent called up somebody else in the bureaucracy the secretary of defense or somebody and was telling his boss who was the next layer of editor up up the line that he had done so and this is what the secretary of defense had said and so on and so on and that that boss said oh my god don't tell Henry that you've done this he won't talk to us Right? It's because Henry, you know, would, would feel peak. You know, he would feel slighted in a, you know, some interpersonal sense by this. Okay. So anyway, yeah, sure. The government does cultivate the media and and very systematically in a in a in a relatively sophisticated fashion. You think there is anybody now writing in the media, in the press? Uh, oh, I don't know. In the Washington Post. Uh, some have suspected Bob Woodward, if you will. Well, I, I don't know. If, if, see, this here's the thing. I don't think that this is so simple as, oh, I'm speaking hypothetically now, oh, that the CIA meets with Bob Woodward and gives him a secret decoder ring, you know, and a paycheck, and, uh, and uh, then he uh, follows orders from Langley. That's not the way it works. The government is much more of a tool here than a director. The government is more subject to the economic forces that uh, shape society than mm, some kind of uh, dictator or all-controlling force. And, and I'll give you an example, right, in, in this particular field. The big way that these um, intelligence and propaganda programs influence daily life, ordinary people's lives, is not through spy stuff. It's through developing techniques that the commercial companies could use to monitor and to sell their services, both in the U.S. and abroad. And, and let, me, let me explain for a minute what I have in mind here, is that in a consumer society, how does it work, or how does part of it work? Well, part of it works like this, is the mass media sells the attention 
don't talk about how much um, you know people like to watch a 60 Minutes or Ted Koppel or something like that. What they talk about is if you, Mr. Advertiser at Procter and Gamble or wherever you are, give us money, we will deliver for you 20 million eyeballs that have such and such economic characteristics, such and such demographic, racial, um, ethnic characteristics, and so on. And then the advertising advertiser sits down and says, okay, well, I want to sell automobiles, I want to sell chewing gum, I want to sell beer, whatever it is, or I want to sell a candidate, and here is the audience that's best for me. And so, okay, here's, uh, here's uh, some money for the mass media, and da 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 that's, how the, that's where the advertisements come from. And that, in turn, is what underwrites the budget of NBC, CBS, local television, and so forth and so on, including the news budget. And, of course, one of the largest advertisers in the United States is the United States government itself with uh, its various programs, including the advocacy of joining the military uh, for service. If you've just joined us, we are speaking with Christopher Simpson. He is the author of Science of Coercion, Communication Research, and Psychological Warfare, 1945-1960. We're talking essentially about the shaping of communications, uh, including journalism, in the United States. Uh, Christopher Simpson, I guess I want to ask you a broad question here. What are the consequences of exactly this sort of thing for democracy? I think it undermines democracy. I think it undermines democracy in a couple different ways. One is, is it provides very powerful tools to forces in society that are largely anti-democratic. Um, the intelligence agencies, propaganda agencies, the military uh, big business and so on. It strengthens their hand in um, in their efforts to control the process of ideology and opinion formation in our country. Now, their control over this process is not absolute. They don't have a free ride. They have to struggle. They spend billions of dollars on the effort of trying to get enough people to think the way they want them to think in order to hold this leaky ship together. Um, these particular tools are uh, powerful tools and help them to do it. More than that, the tool, except to specialists in the field, the tools are typically transparent, right? You watch television most of the time, and particularly if you watch a lot of television, you, you don't really see gee, they're, they're pulling my chain, you know. I mean, uh, uh, it, it, it takes on a certain life of its own that appears to be reality. It appears to be sensible. You might like or dislike Ted Koppel or Dan Rather or any of the rest of them, but they appear to be pretty reasonable guys, at least in the, you know, in the superficial sense of things. Um, so first thing that's, that's anti-democratic is it gives uh, uh, these forces powerful tools. And the tools tend to be particularly powerful in uh, third world countries where um, uh, while people are more sophisticated about the U.S. role in the world than Americans 
capitalism at home and abroad. Um, second way, these tools are fundamentally anti-diversity. They're fundamentally intolerant. Now, that that's a tricky question there, and, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, you can walk into a, a record store and you can buy reggae music and you can buy, um, you know, uh, Thai uh, Kamalian music and so forth and so on. And so, so an argument could be made as well, gee, doesn't this actually encourage diversity? And in a certain sense, it encourages diversity. It encourages diversity in somewhat the same sense that the Catholic Church uh, can coexist, uh, quote-unquote, with native re religions, say, in Africa. The Church will go in there and adopt some of the pageantry, uh, some of the practices, even, uh, uh, you know, try to, uh, to um, let people have some of the same religious practices they had prior to Christianity. But, that pageantry, that costuming, must be strictly subordinated to Catholic or Christian ideology. And if it's not, then, frankly, what the Native peoples are looking at is genocide at the hands of, uh, you know, the whole sort of power structure of Western civilization. And that has happened again and again and again around the world. Western society can adopt some of the plumage of diversity while denying its essence. And, uh, and when it denies its essence, it, it's, you know, we're not just talking about disagreements here. We're talking about um, the extermination of whole peoples and whole cultures. Well, communication research uh, is not alone in this process. But it's a particularly effective and clever tool for, that is used by the, the uh, expansionist forces in Western culture to uh, insinuate itself into other people's culture and other people's business and to substitute Western capitalism, for lack of a better word, Western commercial, consumer-type society for other people's forms of society. That's why I say that, that fundamentally speaking, this is, this is um, uh, anti-diversity. And then the last thing is, is just uh, strictly in the training of journalists, you know. I mean, the, the training of journalists um, uh, teaches people without saying so, without coming right out and saying so, it teaches people to, uh, to stand in line, to, uh, to report what the center says, to uh, bite your tongue when it's time to bite one's tongue. And right now, uh, there are many issues uh, that we can look at as we talk to you, Christopher Simpson, in which the mainstream press is in fact biting its tongue. And uh, we can see, for instance, I'd like your analysis. Uh, maybe you haven't followed closely. I'm sure you haven't missed it totally, though. Uh, you can see, for instance, if you look at uh, the U.S. government and Haiti, uh, just about every aspect of 
what you describe uh, is seen in Haiti as a textbook case. Uh, we have a situation where a, a population elects a president by two-thirds, more than two-thirds of the population in the first free election uh, in uh, the history of the country. And yet, in the U.S. press, President Aristide is still considered unstable, untrustworthy. He's been, it's been suggested that he's uh, pathological. And yet here's somebody who speaks uh, several languages, has written a hundred songs, plays many different instruments, and is loved by his people. Yeah, I think there's, there's at least three different quite large-scale uh, propaganda campaigns going on now. I mean... Well, there's more than that, but, but three of them really jump out at me just looking at this morning's paper. Tell us. And Well, the first one is the Haiti, and I, I know that, uh, uh, Dennis, you've been you know, really working on that issue and looking into it in some depth, and so uh, I'll leave that to you. Two others, D-Day, jeez Louise, what an avalanche of, of real propaganda uh, in the in the sort of classical sense of that word, uh, do we have about D-Day? Front page of USA Today this morning. These men saved the world. Saved the world. And then Time magazine. It's been on the front page of the Washington Post for at least a week. All the prestige press. All the television. And then right down, uh, I'm here in Washington, D.C., and, you know, we've, like many other cities, we have little neighborhood weekly papers. D-Day is the top uh, story in a, in a neighborhood weekly in northwest Washington. has the whole front page. Okay. Now, well, so what about that? I mean, is, is, uh, isn't fighting Hitler heroic? I mean, isn't, isn't sacrificing one's life for one's country a, uh, an honorable thing to do? Well, yes, it is. And the people who made those sacrifices deserve respect and deserve to be honored. The problem with what's going on now, at least this is in my personal opinion, is that um, this particular propaganda campaign presents a very distorted picture of what took place in World War II. Front page of USA Today says, these men saved the world. Okay, what were U.S. losses in World War II among its soldiers? Something like 300,000 people. What were Soviet losses in World War II among its soldiers? Measured in the tens of millions. Who was it exactly that broke Hitler's back? I'm not suggesting that D-Day is irrelevant. I'm not saying that the, what the people who fought there are are bad, and, and I'm not saying that they should be ignored, because the Second Front, the, the invasion of France, was important in a strictly military sense. But I'm saying it's a real distortion of reality to claim that, um, that it was the American armed forces that, that, uh, that uh, made the most difficult sacrifice in that conflict. And, you know, that's even come up between the Americans and the British. Clinton was over there. He was giving a speech. This is in England now. He's giving a speech about how the Americans beat Hitler. Well, the British didn't take very kindly to this because the British, along with the French and the Canadians and many other people, actually sacrificed considerably more than the Americans did. This is what I mean by propaganda. It 
it creates this false picture of the world. And the way that particular picture plays out, I mean, if you look at Eastern European politics since the, since the World War II, you know, there's like all these myths in, uh, out in America about, oh, well, we, we gave away uh, Eastern Europe to Stalin. You know, we, we consigned the Poles to slavery. It's because uh, Franklin Roosevelt didn't have any spine and all this baloney. The, that, those kind of ideas only make any sense at all when they're built upon this myth that the Americans were the ones who really fought Hitler and everybody else kind of helped us, which is mythological. It simply isn't true. All right, so anyway, that's the second big propaganda campaign. The third big propaganda campaign is, is, uh, is this uh, showdown with North Korea that's going on. Let's say that every single thing that the Americans are accusing North Korea of doing is true, okay? Maybe it's not true. It certainly hasn't been proved. But let's say, for purposes of discussion, that every single thing they say is true. Even in that case, what North Korea is doing is not substantially different from what Israel has done. Taiwan, Pakistan, India, and other countries as well. Why is it that you have Charles Krauthammer and all these big pundits writing quite openly on the op-ed page of, of the Washington Post saying that we should go to war against Korea? And yet you didn't hear anybody talking about going to war against Israel for their nuclear program. Um, what, what bugs me about this, I'm speaking just personally now, is the extent of hypocrisy. Um, the, what's really unfolding in East Asia now is a, is a three- or perhaps four-sided nuclear arms race involving Japan, which supposedly doesn't have a nuclear program, nuclear weapons program, but which in truth does, North Korea, which claims it has a nuclear weapons program but probably doesn't have much of one in reality, and South Korea. That's what's really going on. But if we, if we play this thing as, oh, it's these insane North Koreans, they're you know, just messing everything up, they're, they're undermining stability, and we should go to war to teach them a lesson, then, you know, it, it's, it's just... You said three countries. Is the, is the fourth one China? Well, China certainly has nuclear weapons. And India, one. Pakistan, five and six. South Africa. But I have a, you know, in right along what you're saying, I have a question about this hypocrisy. I mean, does the International Atomic Energy Agency or whatever it is, do they come and inspect all the secret parts of the U.S. weapons program? Um, no, no. What they look at is the civilian programs. And the, uh, but the military program in the United States is publicly declared so that um, th there's no, uh, <laughs> in a certain sense, the Americans can build, uh, a, you know, a nuclear arsenal of, of about uh, 20 or 25,000 warheads and not violate these uh, treaties uh, because uh, th they say that they're doing it. Do you follow me? 
there's no diversion from the civilian sector. Uh, it's, it's, these are simply military production reactors. But it does come back then to your analysis of setting the tone so that if the United States government builds 25,000 weapons, that's good because it's really securing democracy in the world. And if South Korea mentions a nuclear weapon but doesn't want to talk much about it, that's bad because South Korea's bad. Well, I think I think you're you're uh, thinking of North Korea in this particular. That, I mean North Korea, yes, right, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that that's true. And see, part of that is uh, is itself built upon a myth, right? And and that has to do with the non-proliferation treaty. What's the non-proliferation treaty that they keep waving? at us in the newspapers. Well, it's an agreement, it comes from the 1960s, in which the countries that at the time already had nuclear weapons said, they, they started worrying that, you know, many other nations would get nuclear weapons, okay, reasonable concern. So they went to the United Nations and they said, look, we'll make a deal with you. If you, you the non-nuclear nations, do not pursue nuclear weapons programs, we will, we, nuclear weapons states, United States, England, Soviet Union, and so forth, we will work seriously towards eliminating our nuclear arsenals. We will do something about this. We will create a world without nuclear weapons, and then therefore you, meaning uh, China, India, Pakistan, you know, the whole list, all the way to, to Ghana, and so on, Therefore, you would not need nuclear weapons. And so the majority of countries in the world agreed to this program and set up a variety of inspection agencies to, to help implement it. Well, think for yourself. How well has the, have the nuclear weapons states done in, quote-unquote, eliminating nuclear weapons? Number one, up until uh, Gorbachev's, uh, breakthrough, they not only had made no progress, but quite the opposite. The, the arms race had exploded uh, multifold. Even with the Gorbachev breakthrough, you don't hear serious talk in the United States of eliminating the nuclear arsenal. They want to cut it back, perhaps, so it's not quite so expensive. Uh, but uh, as far as serious motion towards the claimed goals of the non-proliferation treaty. You see very little. Uh, That's the voice of Christopher Simpson. The book is Science of Coercion, Communication Research, and Psychological Warfare, 1945 to 1960, put out by Oxford University Press. We only have a few seconds left, uh, Christopher Simpson, but I'd like you to close perhaps by a a practical lesson for our listeners who uh, I think are, are very astute and pay attention to the media and are always looking for advice and uh, better ways to understand that which they read and see in the electronic media. So maybe you could just give us a 30-second primer on how you read the newspaper and look at television and sort of like uh, uh, how you sort of look at things and detect uh, uh, the psychological warfare aspects of uh, what you're seeing and hearing and, and uh, experiencing? Well, that's an awful tough question, especially in a 30-second uh, time frame. But the, the, uh, All right, you got a minute. The, oh, okay. 
Okay, well, that, that, that changes everything, I guess. Okay, uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I would have to think about how to answer that. I, I guess the, the, the most uh, straightforward answer is you have to look at this stuff critically. You have to look for the subtext. If you go out and pick up one particular area of news that interests you, race relations, the economy, the nuclear arms race. It almost doesn't matter which one it is. Look at that in depth and really try to grasp it from the inside. And when you do that, you'll understand how the news becomes distorted in that particular case. And then that, in turn, will give you kind of a, oh, a telescope or a tool for looking at news uh, presentations on other issues as well. Oh, I thought you were going to say go out and listen to Pacifica Radio and KPFA Flashpoints uh, to really get an alternative. Well, okay, fair enough, fair enough. I, I if if you wanted uh, if you wanted a plug, I suppose uh, I should have gone ahead and uh, and given you a plug. No, I listen to Pacifica Radio, and and I, I think that Pacifica Radio provides a um, not just a valuable but a genuinely essential voice a genuinely essential community service and and look around is anybody else doing this is anybody else doing anything remotely like what pacifica does now pacifica's got a number of warts okay that's true enough but uh but i, I think that uh that pacifica really uh, does do a uh, a very valuable job, and, and uh, I think it deserves your support. Well, we want to thank you uh, for spending this time with us, Christopher Simpson, Science of Coercion, once again, Communications, Research, and Psychological Warfare, 1945 to 1960, put out by Oxford University Press. You are also the author of Splendid Blonde Beast, another great book and a blowback. I recommend all of them, and uh, we'll be talking to you again. Fine. It's Thanks. my pleasure.